everyone and welcome to episode three. Today you are truly in for a treat because we will be interviewing Mr. David Oliveira. He truly has some of the most interesting stories I've ever heard, from tales about his adventures as a kid to the history behind the flag of Mexico and how it relates to the Aztec city of Aztlan. Today, you will get to experience the indigenous storytelling method of oral tradition firsthand, since most stories are spoken verbally rather than being written down. Mr. Oliveira also has worked with great people like Dolores Huerta throughout his career, and he has also lived in numerous places such as Alaska and San Diego that have further added to his experiences. He is a longtime educator, activist, and social worker. His passion for children led to him working at Solid Ground, which is a wonderful organization that takes a stand against poverty in the community. I am aware that the audio quality isn't the best, so I apologize for that in advance, but I know that I just can't get enough of his stories. So sit back, relax, and prepare to laugh, learn, and enjoy. Here we go. David, thank you so much for coming here. It's such an honor to have you. To start off, can you please just introduce yourself to the audience? Okay. Yeah, my name is David Richard Oliveira. I was um, grew up and raised in San Diego. Um, my father, Vince Oliveira, was one of the uh, first Navy SEAL instructors um, in the Navy. And so I grew up with that um, culture. Um, in fact, I, I even self-taught how to swim at the fib base in Coronado. <laughs> I got so good at holding my breath. One time my dad had all his trainees looking in the pool because we thought maybe I had drowned. And when I popped up, they were, you know, okay with that. Um, so I grew up on the frontier or the border of um, San Diego and Tijuana. And so I was always used to seeing brown faces and brown people everywhere. I just, you know, but um, my biggest influence was probably my Nana, my grandmother, my dad's mother. She originally came from the state of Chihuahua and was part of the Taramara tribe. And you probably have not heard of them, but you probably have heard some of their members. Um, a, prom a couple of prominent members I know and I've, I, I know personally um, uh, is um, Dolores Huerta and Cesar Chavez. Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta, they are um, Taramar too. They have um, relatives that are from that tribe. Um, let's see, I grew up in San Diego, but in 19... 76 I went up to Alaska and I just became really involved I, 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 I couldn't get Alaska out of my system I went back to, to California and attended college in the San Francisco Bay Area I attended UC Berkeley um, but I couldn't take the city life after being exposed to Alaska so I ended up um going back to Alaska, and then I started my own family with a, a Nupiak woman named Wanda Curtis, who was from the Kotzebue region, or the Nana region, because in Alaska they do not have reservations except for one, and that's um, and Metacatla, which is way down on the southeast um, part of Alaska near, you know, where the Clinkett, Haida, and Simpson. In fact, Metacatla is a Simpson tribe village, but because of the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act, all tribes that signed on to that um, weren't given the same status as reservation um, Indians or Natives, I should say, because they're from India. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, that's pretty much where I grew up, and I raised my kids. Um, David and his sister Jolena in Anchorage. So, you know, I, I consider them some of the first 
um, educated urban natives in the state of Alaska and Anchorage. Wow. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, then in 1968, 1997, I was asked by um, someone that had bought the CDS affiliate up in Anchorage if I would be interested in covering news because I was very active um, with uh, the education community and I really had a great mentor, um, Frank Cordova, who's um, has passed, but um, him and his wife came up to Anchorage. His wife actually was running the first um, multicultural education department for the Anchorage School District. And I just, you know, you, you talk about people who are organized, know what they're doing. Uh, these people really taught me a lot. So, um, I, I got hooked up with them when I was a VISTA volunteer for Big Brothers and Big Sisters of Anchorage, in which I was able to get for the first time um, what that agency does is they try to match an uh, adult um, mentor with uh, a young kid, and they were having trouble getting um, kids of color um, matched with um other adults of color, but mm -hmm. um, most of the, they told me that most of the reason why it wasn't happening is because um, the people who volunteered were mainly white European, Caucasian, and they weren't too sure if they could, you know, give what kids need. I've been an early childhood educator for over 40 years, starting with my experiences in Alaska and continuing even today where I work for Solid Ground. Um, and I've been out here at the uh, Ten Point uh, campus ever since 2003. Um, so let me see, what else can I tell you? Okay, I was, I, I did get involved with the Urban Native Education Alliance. I was a treasurer. I think it was 2018 to 2019, um, my daughter became involved because um, her mother, who is um, originally from Chicago, but her family lives in the state of Veracruz, Mexico, and uh, so she's grown up pretty much as uh I told her, don't you ever let anyone tell you you're not indigenous. You're more indigenous than most indigenous people because <laughs> you have many tribes, yeah. you know. But um, I was really proud of the fact that I, the only reason I became aware of Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta being Paramaras when I was working for the U.S. Census, I was invited to um, help escort Dolores Huerta to Tri-Cities area here in Washington State, where she was advocating for people to participate in um, the Census 2000. And the Census 2000 was the first census that um, allowed people to identify themselves as more than one race. Now, my mother's side of the family, they all were Okies, and they came with the Okie migration to California during the Great Depression. In fact, my grandfather, my um, mother's father, was interviewed by John Steinbeck for background material before he wrote the book, Grace of Wrath. And so it's, it's kind of weird because um, my father's <laughs> relatives were all urban Mexican-Americans, at that right. time, they, were, they weren't using the term Chicano. Chicano became more uh, aligned during the civil rights movement in the 60s and really came of age in the 1970s. Um, but her family were the um, farm workers and my father's family were not, you know. Uh, let me see, what else can I tell you? Uh, yeah, go ahead. I. I, I I've probably gave you too much already. So <laughs> no worries. I think it's really interesting to to hear about your background, though. So that was really cool to hear. And um, I think uh, the fact that you were able to interact with like great people like Dolores Huerta that that is so cool. I I cannot imagine um, the amount of cool work that she was doing. So 
That's oh man, she is she is down to earth. She's still active too to this day. I I I check in on this um, podcast called In Casa Con La Plaza. It's um, a nonprofit um, out of East LA. And they did an interview with her, and she's still just as active as I remember her back in 1999 when I first met her. And um, I was uh, when I, I, it was my turn to drive. She was riding shotgun, and she started asking me where I was from. And I told her about my kids in Alaska, and then I told her, yeah, I have a grandmother that's uh, from Chihuahua and supposedly with the Tarahumara tribe, and she just looked at me and said, hey, I'm Tarahumara too, so, <laughs> you know, there was a cosmic connection there. I, I To this day, um, when she, the Smith, you know, Seattle International Film Festival came, I think it was in 2000. I want to say 17 or 18, but her movie came out, Dolores, and it won for first place for um, the best film. And I, somebody from um, one of the unions had a spare ticket and asked me if I would be willing to go. I said, sure, and I went, and we got to reconnect. Uh, she had given me this banner with the... Um, United Farm Workers, when they did belong to the AFL-CIL, and she had written something for me, but I told her, look, I want to give this to my daughter because she's going to continue. And so she signed it, too, and I like how she signed it. Women rule. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's what she told my daughter, women rule, so, you know, keep, keep at it. So, uh, yeah, go ahead, ask me another question. <laughs> That's, that's amazing. Um, she's definitely a big role model for me. I, I learned about her at school. Um, and ever since then, I've just been so interested in the work she's doing. But yeah, um, I would also like I'm really interested in knowing like, um, as like an indigenous person, like what experiences have you had? And like, can you just describe what it's been like? You know, I used to have these discussions with my mentor, Frank Cordova, and uh, he was the one that convinced me. You know, I grew up, um, I was born in 1955, so I grew up with TV. You know, Saturday mornings, my older brother and I would get on and watch cartoons. and They, they weren't all cartoons, there were live shows, too. I, I remember Sky King and Lassie. <laughs> mm -hmm. So anyway... Um, my first experience was I had this um, aunt on my mother's side, and she used to tease me all the time, you know, because, you know, living in San Diego, you always see, people, you know, brown people, and, mm -hmm. and San Diego, believe it or not, has more Indian reservations than any other county in the United States, and so it's, it's hard to tell the, the natives from um the Mexicans, so, you know, mestizo, that's where the term comes from. Um, so anyway, she used to tease me and tell me stuff like, you know, the Mexicans left you at our doorstep and we felt sorry for you, so we decided to take you in. But we're going to take you back, or she would say, the Indians left you at our doorstep, <laughs> and, you know. And she literally would make me cry because of how I was, you know, the television culture of that time was, um, you know, Indians bad, <laughs> white people good. And I would cry and tell her, don't give me back to the Indians, give me to the cowboys. And not realizing at the time, you know, I was probably about eight to ten when this was all going on. And then it wasn't until my, my grandmother, she wanted to spend time with me. Um, and I loved hanging out with her. The only way I can describe the time I spent with her is Rodolfo Anaya's book, Bless Me Ultima. It talks about a Mexican-American grandson hanging out with his grandmother, who, you know, traditional cuaderna, or, you know, she would practice the... Um, the, the native healing process that um, is still part of Mexican culture even today because Mexico has never forgotten that it's um, indigenous roots. It's even implanted in the flag of Mexico. The flag of Mexico is um, based on uh, a dream 
Um, and I come to find out from my friends in Arizona, there was the Hohoyokam people in Phoenix, Arizona. And if you've ever been to Phoenix and you ever fly in, you can see way above the canal system. That canal system was built by indigenous people thousands of years ago. And what they did is they built a more modern version of it. But the legend goes is that one day uh, uh, a shaman told them that they would have to go south and they would find what they call Aslan, A-Z-T-L-A-N. And you would know that you were there because you would see a sign of a golden eagle capturing a serpent. And he would be on an island in the middle of a body of water. And if you um, ever check out the Mexican flag, that's what's on it. That's where that, um, why that symbol is there. So that is where present-day Mexico City is. There used to be a huge lake there. It's not there anymore. Um, but that's how the Aztecs came to be and how Mexico, I guess, came to be. So it wasn't until I really spent time with her, and then even more so when I, I moved to Alaska, that I just realized, you know, I felt like I was back at home because um, the different tribes is like, Alaska is like the European of indigenous cultures. Um, there are three major groups there. There is the Inuit people, the Aleut people, and then what you, we refer to as Native Americans or Indians, you know, the Athabascan, the Tlingit, Haida, Simpson, and especially the Athabascan tribes. In fact, the northern Athabascan tribes are related to the southern Athabascan tribes, which you probably know as Apache and Navajo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they're related. So I, I, I just, <laughs> I found my niche. Someone once told me that you made a reconnection of 4,000 years of our culture, um, you know, and it, I, I just consider myself lucky that um, I did make that cultural connection. Um, it opened doors for me that probably wouldn't have been open any other way, but especially in the sense that if I had not gone to work for the U.S. Census in 2000, um, my daughter, who is getting ready to graduate this year from um, Seattle Prep, would never have been born, and I never would have met Dolores Huerta in real life. I did get to meet someone, Cesar Chavez, before he died. My brother was working with migrant education in that region, and Cesar Chavez had come to um, speak about the necessity of educating um, farm workers' kids because, you know, uh, a requirement in the States is that you had to send your kids to school, but a lot of these kids weren't going to school because there weren't um, schools for them and where they were working. So this was a guarantee that the federal government had to live up to. And my brother got to meet him two weeks before he died. He signed a poster, which I hold dearly, and all my kids and grandkids know this poster. I have it hanging in my wall even today. And it just said, Baba David de Cesar Chavez. And it's a painting that was done at the Mexican border in San Diego, showing um, on one side, it, it, the theme is kind of like Dia de los Muertos, Day of the Dead. You see on the, the Mexican side of the border all these people that were covered up because they didn't make it across the border. And then you would see on the other side what became known as the Chicano movement and the move that was started by Cesar Chavez and in uh, organizing the United Farm Workers of America. Um, if you look closely, it's like his whole face is in the middle. It's real big, but if you look closely underneath his chin, it's got all the people that, you know, were part of that movement. And one of the people that I recognized offhand was Jesse Jackson, um, you know. So, yeah. <laughs> I... <laughs> Question. <laughs> no, that's that's really interesting. Um, I've always been interested in like studying like Mexican history and culture, and I'm actually learning Spanish at school. Um, and I've always just been so interested in it. So I'm so excited that 
I could hear that from you who've experienced it directly. Mm-hmm. In fact, um, we, when I went to Tiger, let's see, this was about 2005, I went down to the state of Veracruz to, with my daughter to go visit her mother's family. And this one gentleman took me up to the top of the hills where the indigenous people still um, live. And most indigenous people in Alaska, I mean, in Mexico, don't speak Spanish. They're still, um, what do they call it, Nachua, which is the language of the Aztec. There was a gentleman there that when he heard that somebody was um, a Mexican-American from Alaska was coming, uh, he wanted to practice his English. And it was very unique when I met him. His name was Farron, like um, the term for iron. Mm-hmm. And when he spoke, he spoke with a British accent. <laughs> and the reason he spoke with a British accent is because he had learned it in England at Cambridge University. Uh, but we sat down and he took me up. It was Holy Week at that time, I remember. And so we went up to the churches and everybody was, you know, setting up offenders, altars to their patron saints. Um, there were flowers, everybody. It was just, I'll never forget that, you know, I'll never forget that experience because it, it's just that, in some ways, the indigenous cultures weren't, you know, completely knocked out. They were just, you know, not mentioned so much in history. But now because of this pandemic, um, black and um, indigenous and people of color, the, you know, it, it, it's a truth that our country needs to come to terms with, especially after um, the... the the Capitol riots on January 6th, which, by the way, is the holiday in Mexico. It's called King's Day. And that's when uh, in Mexico they ex- actually do exchange presents. And the King's Day represents when the three wise men came and, um, to the manger where Jesus was born. So, hmm. yeah. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. There there definitely needs to be, like, more awareness about this. And that's why I was hoping that I could just, like, share people's stories like yours. And it's so interesting to hear. And um, I when I was listening, hearing about this at school, um, it made me so, so sad that all this indigenous culture was slowly being wiped away in Mexico. And um, that's why I just, like, read about it as much as I can because it really interests me. Well, you'll find out when you go to Mexico, it's not dead there. It's just dead here because, you know, the interest is that, you know, there's, there's not a, a good record for in U.S. history how indigenous people were treated here. Um, most of them died because of smallpox and diseases that people had brought over from Europe. But also the history in this country is there was at one time they, they wanted to... Um, their solution to deal with the indigenous um, problem was to, um, they were giving out money for bounties for scalps for people. And this is the sad part because, you know, all you had to do was scalp somebody and bring in the scalp and they'd give you a bounty for it. And then, um, a lot of Mexicans, because we look, we look so native. And that's, that's why I told my daughter, "Don't you ever let anyone tell you you're not native just because mm-hmm. you're Mexican." Even the term itself, I come to find out, Hispanic, Mexican American, it's not a race, or it's it's there. And it wasn't until the census two thousand that people could declare themselves. Because I have run into so many. Um, Chicanos, Chicanas, Mexican-American, Latinas, Latinos, that they know, especially, I'll never get this one woman um, at a union meeting, and we were talking about it, and she was just in tears, because she was just saying, Dad, we're not white. We don't even look white. Why do they they call us that? And uh, it wasn't until I talked to somebody that was working with the farm workers up in, um, God, was it in just north of Seattle? Mm-hmm. Um, 
that she was saying the same thing. And then I would come to realize what my mentor was telling me about assimilation and accommodation. And it's not too different from what happened to indigenous people. If you ever go Google Carlisle School, it was an Indian boarding school. And they'll show you before and after photos of when the kids came in and they didn't, Kids didn't, these kids were being removed from their families, and this was even happening in Alaska to our friends that were, you know, not too much older than me, telling me these horror stories, especially how during World War II, it wasn't just Japanese Americans that were interned, there were Aleuts, and they were, my, um, I had a Aleut friend from Ingoon, and he told me, he remembers his, his, um, grandfather telling them about when they came that they, the military just left them off in their village of Angoon and of course native people take care of other native people um, but they had left them with nothing except the shelter and so you know they could hear when they came that they yeah, you know when the settlement did come during Ronald Reagan's administration Few people realized that the Aleuts were included in that bill too, because they were um, they got um, what do you call it? Rep- um, where they pay you back for all the anguish they put you through. I'm sorry, I'm just struggling for words. It's this COVID <laughs> pandemic thing, mind going. But yeah, it's like you know. I really hope. Um, this country deals with it because, you know, our, what was done in the 18th and 19th centuries should never have happened. Um, and, you know, that's what Hitler used for his final solution with the Holocaust, with Jewish people and people that didn't fit the Nazi party. He even wrote it in his book, Mein Kampf, that he took a lesson out of the U.S. history book on how they dealt with indigenous people back then, that that's how they were going to deal with the Jewish problem um, during World War II. Mm-hmm. It it absolutely horrified me when I heard about the Carlisle boarding boarding school. It's it's so awful. It's it really. Oh, I know you see the before and after pictures. Yeah. You know, they, um, there was a boarding school even in Alaska, Mount Edgecombe. It was in Sitka, Alaska, and my clinker friend had said that he had to work there. And you could hear the kids crying because. During vacation time, if you had enough money, you could go back and visit your family in your village. But if you did not, these kids were left behind. It was just sad. You know, they were, he could hear them moaning and groaning and crying and wishing that they were home. Uh, it wasn't until the, the Molly Hooch decision, I think it was in 1973 or 74, that they said they had to start offering um education in the villages and not, you know, a one-stop shop way far away from their um, their home. Mm-hmm. Because that's what Alaska mainly is and still is, is isolated villages. So, you know, it's not easy to just get, hop on a plane and, and get back or drive. You can't drive your car except maybe up in Fairbanks mm-hmm. to the Hall Road to Prudhoe Bay, but other than that, it, it's a lot of isolated villages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it really it really pains pains me to see that, um, especially with the boarding schools, the before and after pictures. The the people didn't even look mm-hmm. the same. They look like a completely different person, and it, it was so shocking to see that. Well, you know, I used to have these arguments <laughs> with, yeah, but they're helping them. And then he finally got through to me. I, I'm going to do an impersonation of his voice because this is exactly how I remember. You're not listening to me. You have to listen to me. And I was listening. And it took a while, but, you know, this is why this country really got to come to terms with its past. It's in denial that, that, you know, we're the land of the free and home of the brave, but at what cost did it cost, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We don't, you know, indigenous people, man, right now probably have more solutions on how to deal with um, 
you know, the climate change that is going on in this world because they've always been caregivers of the planet, you know. Mm-hmm. You look at T.C. out on the Duwamish tribe, jeez. In fact, I only became aware of Chief uh, Seattle when I was teaching at Coquinlet Native Association Head Start Program. And there was a book written about how Chief Seattle, the speech that he gave that we, we are only part of the earth, we are not the whole earth. And so he was trying to explain to them that there was a reaction and that when one um, piece takes over for another piece that it, it could lead to chaos and that's what we're seeing now look at texas during the snowstorm man it's awful that's this stuff never used to happen mm-hmm. <laughs> you know sure. now it's happening so it's time to you know we wake up mm-hmm. yeah oh yeah the the texas what's happening in texas like that's definitely probably a direct result of like global warming and it's crazy how much I saw videos of it and it was crazy how much snow there was and um that should never happen like uh the the cattle in Texas I heard it was really sad um because of the cold like their ears were falling off of the cows it was so sad yeah, it was, the electric grid could not, you know, keep enough people warm. It was, people were freezing. I saw this one story where this guy has a furniture store, and he just opened it up and said, you know, come on in, because a lot of people were without heat, uh, you know, because they rely on electricity too much and, you know, fossil fuels. And they thought they had the problem solved, but no. Yeah. <laughs> you know? We really need to put our resources where it's going to have the biggest impact, especially for the future. And that's one thing I I really did learn from my experience with my grandmother and my experience with um, my kids' family up in Alaska is that people really are think of each other and not of themselves, you know. Mm-hmm. And that they are worried about natural resources, and if you don't take care of it, Mother Earth will not take care of you no longer because it won't be around. Yep, I totally agree. And and you mentioned that this country needs to come to terms with its past instead of being in denial. So, what what do you think that that should be? What do you think should be done? To address well, I, I think the first step is when they, um, Biden chose Deborah Hayland from New Mexico, first time ever an indigenous person has been in charge of Bureau of Land Management, which is, um, BIA is under that, you know. There's, there's so much history that was not told. Um, it's like, you know, even the concept of fry bread, that comes from when um, Bureau of Indian Affairs, these people were starving and the only thing they were giving them was, you know, flour, salt, and maybe some lard or butter. So what did they do? They figured a way of making um, lemonade out of lemons, and that's where fry bread came in to the make, you know, that's why fried bread, and it's a common thing, even up in Alaska, because I remember um, I was working for um, Cooking Lake Native Associate Head Start Program, and we had our first powwow, and so I told everyone, hey, you know, down in the southwest of San Diego, we have what we call an Indian taco, we take that fried bread, we put, um, you know, beans, meat, salsa, lettuce, tomatoes, and so I convinced, <laughs> I can still hear my friend, even though he's passed on, he kept on saying, what did you get me into? We ended up being the only food booth because nobody else wanted to go eat hamburgers and hot dogs. They wanted the real deal because we had um, native um, dancers come from the lower 48, and they knew exactly what it was. We never did get to see the whole powwow for the three days because we were always busy feeding the masses, the dancers and the, the people that had come to the powwow. And needless to say, we, we, we made some good money for cooking the Native Association Head Start program. 
that's wonderful though um that's that's yeah yeah like um is there any food you would like native food you would recommend trying from alaska um no just like in general if someone said that they wanted to try like indigenous food what would you tell them to try well, in Alaska, I would try to, to tell them try seal oil with um, smoked salmon or carrots um, because that's mainly how the Inuit or the Inupiaq people of my kids' um, family, that's how they were able to survive because they knew, you know, that it's not like you can go to the corner grocery store and get fresh fruits and vegetables, but during the wintertime when it is dark and cold, seal um, were a main source of um, food for them. And um, I really didn't like Fuel oil and, and smoked salmon, oh, it's, it's the bomb. Um, and as far as other native food, um, the Clinkets do something with uh, sea kelp. They call it Clinket popcorn. They dry it out and you, you eat it. It's, it comes out in little balls that look like popcorn. That's what they call it. And they also do um, spruce branches. When the herring come in um, mid-spring, they start mating, and um, so the eggs are in the water, and what they would do is cut off branches of spruces, you know, with the needles, and stir it around in the eggs, and then boil it, not for very long, but boil it, and oh God, that stuff is so good. It pops in your mouth. <laughs> and then there, the Aleuts have this thing called fish pie, where they, it's just like a, 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 a pie crust with the top, but they put halibut, salmon, and cod in it, and they put potatoes and carrots, and it's baked in. Oh, God, it's so good. You're making me hungry. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's really no, it's nice talking to somebody about this. <laughs> I, I remember fondly, when I, I, and then a gutuk. I don't know if you ever heard of the Kutuk. It's um, they call it um, well. Inuit people will say Eskimo, but Eskimo is a derogative term. It's kind of like the N word with um, um, the black community, but it's okay. It's another Inuit says it. But um, a Kutuk is is um, Inuit ice cream, and there was how they used to make it traditionally was with um, caribou talon. And then they would mix it up with berries and all different kinds of berries and dry fish, uh, a white sea fish, and mix it all up. But then when um, Western culture came up there, they started using Crisco instead of uh, caribou towel. And, and, oh, God, you know, there's so many different berries and, and like, in the summertime, you go berry picking, blueberry, salmonberry, raspberry, cranberries, low bush cranberries, high bush cranberries, and you you save it for the winter, winter time because, you know, the outside is a natural deep freeze, so mm -hmm. I remember people always having their food hanging out of their window. Um, the, the traditional food up in Kotzebue um, in the wintertime because they didn't have to worry about spoiling. But, oh, God, that stuff was so good, you know. Mm. Uh, it sounds very nutritious, so that's that's really good. Well, these people have been around for 10,000 years plus, <laughs> and so they've been doing something right. Mm -hmm. Now all of a sudden, look at where we're standing, you know, all these huge storms and you know, they're causing outages and everything. It's, you know, we need to get back to a balance, and but a balance is not gonna, just going to come with, you know, a predominantly European solution. It, it's it's, it's got to come from everybody, every aspect of all the cultures involved, you know, in what has made America what it is today, you know. Mm-hmm. How how do you think that like people can do that? What do you think people should do to go back? Well, I, I think first of all they should go back and read their history books and get it right. Secondly, 
I think that people need to really start listening more. Um, you know, I I was raised Roman Catholic, so for Lent I gave up saying that evil man's name until Easter, so I can't say his name. But you know who I'm talking about that used to be in the White House. Uh, because when the, the narrative is only one-sided, you're not getting the complete story. You know, I... I, I align a lot with um, people of color, especially African Americans, because at least for my side of, of that indigenous, they decided that the only way to get rid of us was to kill us. And so what did they do? They started bringing in slaves from Africa. You know, I keep on, I tease my friends sometimes, but they know exactly what I mean is that at least. You know, you guys got to live, and you were three-fifths of, of a person. We weren't even considered people. Native people didn't get to vote until the mid-1940s, and they weren't recognized as citizens because of the reservation status. There was a plus and minus. The minus was that they couldn't elect the government that was telling them how they were going to run the reservation. But um, it was... It's just like, you know, we're, we got to get this right. That's all I could say, you know. And before I leave this this planet, I, 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 I see hope coming alive again. And I really, at first, I did not believe it when Obama got elected. First, non-white president, and then come to find out that people are really... It, it exposed our all our weaknesses, you know, all the past discriminations have come to surface, and this is part of the problem why we have so many, so much, so much, so much hassle with just dealing with the, the issue of racism because we really haven't dealt it with it. Like if you grew up in a a white European culture, you weren't exposed. You, I've had arguments for friends when I tell them about white privilege. And so this is one of the things I really do like most about the, um, the pandemic or the silver lining, I should say, of the pandemic is that it exposes a lot of our inequities and uh, people were paying attention. So people started doing something and, you know, that gives, that gives me hope. It really does. Mm-hmm. I definitely agree. Yeah. This, this pandemic has definitely allowed us to see, like, um, like the people who are and aren't able to, like, you know, because of their, their statuses and, like, their poverty, like, it's been difficult for certain people, and I think people have started to take notice more. So, yeah, that's, that's a good point. Um... Go ahead. Oh, no. Go ahead. I wasn't going to say anything. Well, I was just going to say, you know, um, I've been working out here at Sandpoint for over 18 years. But during the pandemic, I've been working every day. I haven't been working remotely. But um, I could see that um, especially people, communities of color were being stricken by the pandemic worse because they have to go work in order to pay their bills, to keep their families, you know, food and shelter. Um, you know, we, we experienced uh, a couple of deaths out here too, but actually when you see somebody who's suffering really severely and struggling to breathe um, with um, COVID-19, you realize it's not a fake. It's just a real deal, you know. Mm -hmm. um, my daughter's aunt works as a um, isolation unit um, nurse in, where is it, North in the Shoreline area, mm -hmm. and she sees these people dying every day. You know, I, I, I tell everyone because um, I grew up during the Vietnam era and draft was still alive, um, and I was scared that I would end up having to go to war in Vietnam, but luckily, when the draft ended, it ended the day I turned 18, so. <laughs> but oh, wow, that's lucky. The, the frontline nurses and the doctors and the medical, these people are suffering just like the Vietnam vets did in coming back from Vietnam. You know, you see 
so many, so many people dying in front of you. And then, you know, you hear in the media and, you know, especially from the, the White House that this is not a real disease. It's, you know, just... It, it, it just gets to you. you know, I, I just hope, hope that people your age and your your kids back don't have to go through this, the same stuff that I had to go back through. Um, my union sent me to um, Memphis, Tennessee in 2018, and we were part of the march um, to commemorate the assassination of Dr. King. And the one thing I noticed was that things had not changed all that much, you know, especially in the South. Um, and I really felt like, you know, after leaving um, that march that, you know, we can't go back. We can't go back to how things were, you know. This whole thing about white supremacy and white privilege. If we're really America, we have to live up um, our values to all Americans and be more accepting. It, it, it was just hard, especially when um, they wanted to put up the wall. Because I used to be able to go every time to Tijuana anytime I wanted to. Especially with my dad, I enjoyed it because I knew when I was on his good side, he'd take me down to Tijuana to go get my hair cut. <laughs> and I would go to the Canaria um, and get pastries and cookies and also grab illegal fireworks. But if I was on my bad, bad side of my dad, I did something, I knew it. He would take me down to the Marine recruit that depot here in San Diego. I would have to get a trainee haircut. To this day, I still wear my hair long because I'm afraid if I die, I don't want to die looking like a white man. Oh. That's interesting. Also, um, you mentioned that you work with Solid Ground, which is definitely a really, um, a really wonderful organization that does great work here. Um, can you talk about the kind of work you do there and what you've experienced there? Okay. Um, well, I, I came here because when my daughter, let's see, she was about a year and a half, and so I had been working at Madison Park Co-op, which um, was in the very affluent neighborhood of Madison Park, and I'd never done a co-op before, so I was really intrigued, but I felt like I was um, not serving the community I needed to. I mean, I could see the same thing going on with these young children and you know they kids want their parents around they want you know to know that they their parents love them and all that the same but you know the resources aren't quite the same so i saw an ad for um someone to work with the kids out here and at that time low income housing institute was running the programs out here um and so when I came here, I knew I was at the right place. Um, it was December 15, 2003, and there was a Christmas party. And uh, I, there was something that was said by one of the parents to their kids, you know, because they weren't paying attention. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, God, this is where I need to be. I need to help teach these people how to, you know, deal with their kids in a proper way. And that's mainly what I've been doing is um, I'm, been working with kids and a lot of them have grown up and moved on but you know it was the same thing I was doing in Alaska except in Alaska when you travel around it's got still has a population under one now you would run into people and they would tell me stuff like hey I remember you used to be my head start teacher and we would reminisce and look and I go yeah and then it started happening here, too, because <laughs> I, I take public transportation to get back and forth, and I've run into kids that used to live out here. And this one kid told me that, you know, when I lived out there, that was the best time I had in my childhood. And I just, you know, that's exactly, you know, why I'm in this field. is because mainly I think every kid in America deserves a childhood. They really do. They need to have memories of being a kid, being treated as a kid, living as a kid. So 
that's why I've been here for all these years, because I feel like this is where I need to be. And plus the fact my daughter was, you know, living here. And I told my, my older kids and my grandkids I would go and visit, but, you know, one thing I was raised by both of my parents, my mom and my dad, is, you know, you take care of your kids. Your kids come first. So I'm, I'm really am looking forward to getting a vaccination so I can go visit my family up in Alaska. I miss them so much. But they come down here and visit, not as much as I would like, but they do. So that's how I keep in connection with my, my indigenous roots. And uh, that's pretty much why I'm still here. But I'll tell you, maybe in a uh, year or two, as soon as I know my daughter's settled in and she knows what she's going to um, do in college and everything, that um, I'm, I'm going back to Alaska. That's where I, my heart really is. That's great. Yeah, I, I know you probably can't tell, but that, that makes me smile. That really does. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> I can tell now you told me. It's <laughs> really nice. Um, I know I've taken a lot of your time, but um, I'd just like to ask you one more question. Since I'm not indigenous, okay. I I really, you know, this this topic has really interested me. Um, so what would you, what would you say to people who are non-Indigenous? What would you want them to know? Oh, God. You know what I really want them to know? The, the best story I ever did when I was a news reporter in Anchorage was with a Master Sergeant, Roy Benavides. He was the last living recipient of the Medal of Honor from Vietnam. Not only did he get wounded once, and he could have been discharged, he actually pulled himself out of, um, and did his own rehab in the middle of the night from his medical bed. And they were going to discharge him. So um, the doctor told him, look, if you can get out of your bed and walk over um, to the that wall over here and back, I will not sign your discharge papers. Little did he know that people in that ward, and you should read the book, <laughs> and Master Sergeant Roy Benavides, he actually rehabbed himself, and the doctor was so shocked when he got up out of bed and walked. It was, it was some strain, but he did it, so the doctor lived up to his um, word and didn't sign his discharge papers. And because of that, he went back to Vietnam, and um, his actions on that, on coming back, is what won him the Medal of Honor. And, you know, this is a thing that, especially indigenous people, don't get enough credit for, mm -hmm. is, you know, uh, you, you've heard of the code talkers, you know, yep. the Navajo. Yeah, and the Japanese could not break their code because... Their language was not written. They had no idea what they were talking about, you know? <laughs> yeah. So it, it's just like, um, and I had the opportunity of, of um, meeting Billy Mills. He's the um, Sioux uh, gentleman that won the gold medal and wasn't even expected to win it. I think well, that was in 1964, yeah, in Tokyo. And... It's amazing. I, I've heard him speak. I heard him speak in Alaska. And anyway, he came out here um, to Seattle. He talks about how, you know, that last part of the race, and go look up the footage, is that he saw the runner in front of him, this golden arrow, which told him to keep going and keep going. Then at the last minute, he pulled away and he won the gold. You know, people are determined, and I think indigenous people more than anyone have been put through a lot of stuff, but we're still here. We're still here, you know? That's yeah. what I would tell people. And if it wasn't for them, maybe the United States would not still be here, you know, for all the mistreatment that we've done to indigenous tribes in the past. It's time to make amends and, you know, recognize them for what they, they are. They... If it wasn't for 
black indigenous people of color, you know, this country wouldn't be as strong as it is now. You would think that it was only white people that made this country what it is, but the true story is coming out. It's coming out slowly, but it's coming out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's that's the def- that's the reason why I wanted to start this podcast. I was like, you know, I may not be indigenous, but like I really want to help share that indigenous story because I think it's so important to hear, especially for people who aren't indigenous. So, I hope that. Well, it's part of your history if you're American. Even if you weren't born here and you became a citizen, that's the story everybody you know really needs to hear. I remember I was teaching, I was um, working with um, the English Latino Alliance as the past president, and we decided to um, do a citizenship class. And 80 people showed up from different cultures and everything. So I decided that the strategy we were going to use is the strategy I used to use when it came to finals study for the test. So what we did is we studied for the test. There's a, there were a hundred questions that were asked, and these people need to know that. I remember um, what's the guy Jay Leno used to do these interviews and ask these same questions, mm-hmm. and most Americans that grew up here couldn't answer them. They didn't know, you know, why are are uh, there thirteen stripes in the flag? What do the stars represent? Who's your um, Senator, who's your um, congressional representative? You know, this is stuff that people have to know in order to become a citizen if you weren't born here. So it's just part of the thing, you know, is we need to include the whole story of America, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. <laughs> but once truth is exposed, that's, that's good, I, I feel. Oh yeah, definitely. Well, that was well phrased. Yeah. Um, well, I I really like wish I could talk to you forever because your stories are so interesting. <laughs> I love hearing them so much, but I want to be respectful of your time. So, um if if you uh have to go, that's totally fine, but um I really would love to have you again because I just can't get enough of all the stories you're sharing. Oh yeah. See, you know, Native people have oral stories. Our stories are all oral. They're not written down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's the coolest part, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I appreciate you taking the time to listen because, you know, you guys are going to be taking over here in about 10 or 15 years. So, you know, we got to leave you with something better than what we have now. That's my biggest concern, you know, because there's a saying in the Native community, you think seven generations ahead. And after um, raising my family in Alaska, I I know what that means. I remember some of the elders that took the time and and told me about their stories. And these are some of the things that I'm sharing with you because they took the time and wanted me to know for sure, you know. Mm-hmm. Because we need to pass it on. We need to pass it on to everybody in this country. You know, you Definitely. can accept it or not, but that's the reality of how America came to be. Definitely, and and the thing is that they don't they don't really teach about this as much as they should in schools. Unfortunately, I haven't I know, really. It's sad. Yeah, I haven't really learned um, about Native history at school, and it makes me it makes me upset. So. I think these are the kind of conversations. Yeah, well, they're embarrassed by the past, so, you know, it's kind of like the ostrich with his head in the hole <laughs> when he panics or he thinks he's recovered, but, you know, you can still have your head in the hole, take it out, pay attention, and learn, you know, how things came about. So it's always good to, to know your roots, you know, and especially the roots of this country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Anushka, what does your name mean? It okay. So it's a it's an Indian and almost like Russian name. It means a term of endearment, um, or it also means graceful. So yeah, it's it's like oh, Indian right. and Russian. It has a lot of origins. <laughs> well, that's good. Yeah, because uh, when I was going to Berkeley, I decided I, I ran into these uh, Chinese American students. They were 
teaching me how to do Chinese characters. And so I decided, what does Oliveira mean? So I looked it up. It's an old um, Castilian spelling for olive tree. And it was weird because when I was um, going to high school in Poway, California, we lived on a street called Olive Tree Lane. And our house was one of the few houses that did not have an olive tree in the front. And then I come to realize that's because we were the olive trees. Oh, how interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time to listen to me, okay? And feel free to call me anytime if you have any more questions, okay? Awesome, I will. Okay. Well, good luck. Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad you're taking the time to share these things. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Okay. Okay. Bye. Take care. You Anushka. too. Bye bye. Ciao.